Hi, this is Angie Fiedler-Sutton. And Morris. And you're listening to Episode 5 of Stage Savvy. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 5 of Stage Savvy. Today with us is actor, director, producer, and curator of The Fish Take, Heidi Van. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you. And we're here to just talk to her about who she is and what she's doing and about this lovely creation of The Fish Tank. So welcome aboard. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> uh, first off, just uh, what kind of got you started into acting and in the theater world? I grew up and my mother was involved in a children's theater production with the Junior League in Kansas City, Kansas. For years, every year they would do this show. And so she would be in it or she'd direct it, but she'd always take me with her, especially when I was young, and I'd just sit there and sometimes I'd be like an animal or a tree. But I was always involved in the production and from a really young age I was just always interested in live theater because it was magical to me. And I didn't really participate later on until the end of high school, but like that's where my interest began. And I, I became a theater watcher, but not really a participant. Are you originally from the Kansas City area? Uh-huh. Okay, I'm from so you've, KCK. you've been here pretty much all your life? My whole life. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> and, and you're obviously a professional actor and, and director uh-huh. and whatnot. Do you have a degree in theater? I do. I went to St. Mary College in Leavenworth, Kansas, where I studied history, political science, and theater. And then I went on to study at the Del Arte International School of Physical Theater in Blue Lake, California, which further refined kind of like my vision and basically what I do now, creating new material, working in ensembles and stuff like that, and making my own work. That's where I learned that. That's awesome. And, you know, I'm so interested with the fish tank. I've seen several productions there. Mm -hmm. There's always something new, something new and exciting. What kind of gave you that idea? How did you bridge the gap from being interested in theater and kind of doing it in the area to creating your own space? Well, I was doing a show with Corey Von Osdale at the Coterie. We were doing Atypical Boy together, and we were sitting next to each other in the dressing room. And one day, like, this is what happened. She just looked at me, and she's like, do you want to go in on me with a space? And I was like... (laughs) Okay. Like, that's how it happened. So everything kind of went backwards. But as we're sitting there and, like, painting it and figuring it out, we just came up with goals that we wanted the space to have. Like, we wanted it to be a playground. We wanted it to be a place for people to either create or work or have classes or make new work. But And primarily for that, for people to create and perform. So, like I said, it went backwards because there was a space and no specific plan. But I think it worked out great because I've learned over two years, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And I do have to get more organized, which is fine. You know, I resist being organized from being specific. But it's like, you know what, to make this work, it it has to be. So that's how that happened. And I, I love it. How did you come up with the name Fish Tank? Oh, my gosh. We were looking at so many different names. But... What I kept thinking of is at Del Arte there was this this residence called the Fish Bowl and it was this big retail shop that they turned into a, a apartment and it had this huge window and this girl Dawn lived in it and like yeah you just looked in she'd be like hey you know so but it was like a rectangular thing and so and there's those big windows in the front so mm-hmm. we called it the Fish Tank it's just yeah. like that but I like to think of it as like that things are breathing and happening and you know being created in there. It's much like a, it has its own environment because of the people who are involved. But it did just come from those windows and just 
looking in, kind of looking in on the process. We don't really hide process there a lot. So you see all the nuts and bolts of a play there. So do you own the space or do you rent it? I rent it. You rent it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, the building is owned by a couple, and then it's managed by David Ford. So that whole block that's Birdie's and Spool and Peggy Nolan and YJ's, the bike shop, me, and we're all um, managed by David Ford. And then within the building where the fish tank is, Peregrine Honig has a studio, Hadley Johnson has a studio, and David Ford has a studio. So it's fun to be in this building where there's all these studios, and that mine just happens to be a tiny theater. And I really like to keep that idea that it's this is a studio or it's a gallery, it's a performing arts gallery. Like, it is what it is. It's not more. <laughs> it just is what it is, you know. And so. how did you kind of decide that that was the route to go? I know you said that, all right, the space showed, showed up. Uh-huh. You kind of went forward. Mm-hmm. How did you create the idea of making it more gallery as opposed to we're going to have five shows every year and it's right. going to be this, this, and this. How did you make it more organic? Well, I think that pe- the people who have proposed ideas have been inspired by the space. It's tiny. And you have to, like, your size and scope has to be appropriate, of your project has to be appropriate to, to the space and so that it'll really be successful. There's been people who have proposed things that I'm like, that's not going to work. Yes, I would love to see that happen, but it, it probably won't be the most successful in this space. So sometimes we have, like at the beginning it was like, okay, only this many actors, only, you know, like we had all these confinements about what could be produced in there. But then like Jeff Church using it for Thrill Me and and utilizing it in the round opened up a a lot of people to different ideas. And there's been people who are like, oh, I want to stage something in there like that. Or after seeing another way, they're like, I want to stage something in there like that. So... So how far in advance do you have things planned out in terms of shows there? Oh, sometimes six months. Sometimes if there's an open spot, it just goes bam, you know. Now it's getting longer term. It's funny when I think about the evolution of it. At first we just had these, like, one-night-only events, like reading Sarah Palin's book (laughs) or or Factory in the Fish Tank, and I'd put up things like that. And then all of a sudden we just started producing plays, which was... And so since the summer, it's kind of been like, oh, we're producing plays. And then I go in there, and now I kind of want to go back into um, something else. It always is changing. Mm -hmm. And it's changing because of what I'm motivated to do. Because sometimes producing plays is hard and very costly, so I want to go and do something else. I want someone else to produce plays. (laughs) (laughs) I know you have a number of various actors and other theater people on, on the... I'm guessing it's a board... They're called resident artists. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so. who all's that? I know David Wayne Reed is one of David them. David Wayne say. Reed, Lisa Cordes, Damian Torres Botello, who now lives in Chicago. Peter Lawless is a musician. Rhiannon Birdsall, um, she's from the Kansas City Art Institute, and she has a monthly performance series called the Rhiannon Birdsall Invitational Performances, which are awesome. And Jeremy Lillig. I think that's it right now. Mm-hmm. Crystal Gould, my partner with hybrid which is my my company which is not the fish tank the fish tank is a space but i have a company okay (laughs) no that makes a different name that makes sense no that's (laughs) and i've participated with hybrid tell us a little bit more about it it's a really cool program um the well i started a couple years ago in 2007 i was working for a nonprofit and doing arts in prison creating programs for um adjudicated and at-risk youth and as acting jobs got higher, I 
left the desk job, but I was still able to keep the teaching contracts, which was great. So what we do is we go into residential treatment centers, juvenile detention centers, or I work with a girl with a girls group on probation, and we utilize playwriting, creative writing, and theater techniques to kind of create team building, trust. The goal is also to write a play and have them perform it. Sometimes it's really hard, and, and it's a great thing that the process is more important to me than the product because they get so much out of the process. So with my group that I do, we take a social issue and we kind of we write poems or short stories about social issues. We're doing a piece on, because it's National Teen Pregnancy Awareness month or mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And so they have taken that as their topic and we wrote stuff about it. It's crazy. Very <laughs> yeah. Very so. cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, tell me a little bit about some of the acting stuff you've got going on right now. Do you have anything big that you're doing? Um, right now I am not doing any acting. I have a show at the New Theater in the fall that I'm looking forward to. And I'm creating a window play for the Fringe this summer. So I think I'm going to be in it. Sometimes I'm always like, I think I want to be in it. And then sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I want to be in it because I like to see it and it's mm-hmm. hard when you're inside. But I think I might be able to with the way I'm going to structure it. I just did a show at the Unicorn in February. And was it February? Yeah, January, February. I yes, the, I saw the that. The Vibrator play. Yes. That was super fun. So I've done some auditions. So fingers crossed that my phone rings and I get the gig. That would be nice. So it is hard. I go back and forth between, you know, playwright, creator, running a theater, and then sometimes I'm like, oh, I really want to act, like in at another theater, <laughs> you know, yeah. rather than my own theater, you know, because it's hard to be all of those people in one place. Well, if someone were to mm-hmm. want to produce something at the Fish Tank, right. I'm assuming they would just, I'm assuming your contact information is on the Fish Tank's website? It is on fishtanktheater.com, and that's theater with an E-R, and then the, it's Heidi at fishtanktheater.com. And we'll link to that in our show notes as well. Anything else? No, that, uh, that was really interesting, kind of learning a lot more about the Fish Tank. I think a lot of people have really utilized that space, whether it's mm-hmm. a viewer or mm-hmm. um, as a participant, and so it's really cool to bring that out and talk about it. And for uh, those of you, this is going up in May. Um, we just decided that Heidi will be our spotlight in the Ju- July issue. So um, there will be a much longer interview with her on that. We obviously are limited time on this because we don't want audio interviews are much different than print interviews. <laughs> so if you have any more, just keep your eyes out for on the, on my blog as well as to the Casey Stage website. And uh, we'll have some more information on that. So um, anything else, Heidi, that you wanted to make sure we said? Oh, my gosh. No, just... Check out the website of the Fish Tank and come down to our events. There's sometimes plays, there's one-night events, there's music, there's all sorts of different things. And most of them are original, created by people here in Kansas City. Awesome. Well, Mm -hmm. we'll take a short break and then we'll continue with Heidi, but on a totally info topic Mm -hmm. um, of what exactly a producer does and what that means and kind of go into the nuts and bolts of start to finish what a producer's job does. So we'll be right back. Hi, this is John Rensenhouse with Kansas City Actors Theater, and you are listening to Stage Savvy. And we're back. So let's start out with my favorite research um, area, Wikipedia. I know a lot of people smudge it, but I think it's actually one of the best research places to start, as long as you know that it's that's not your only thing. It's the first thing that thing. comes up when you Google something. Yeah, you know? so <laughs> according to Wikipedia, a theatrical producer is, quote, the person ultimately responsible for overseeing all aspects of mounting a theater production. It talks about they're mainly responsible for creating and overseeing the budget, as well as hiring the director, 
labor. Sometimes they're involved in the casting process as well, hiring any of the other technicians and that kind of stuff. That They're basically the CEO, I guess, uh, if you want to use it in a more commercial atmosphere. Would you agree with that definition? Absolutely. I would agree with that definition. But it also talks about another kind of producer is the non-independent who is, quote, better described as a line producer, a facilitator of other wishes, people's wishes. Basically, that they're kind of more of a managing director as opposed Mm -hmm. to a producer. And that's from reading this. It's basically kind of how you can call, say, the barn players as a producer. It's not one person per se. It's more of an organization. Right. Mm -hmm. So what exactly as a producer of the fish tank, say, you know, poof, Mm -hmm. Heidi, I have an awesome show I want to produce at the fish tank. You have a space open. Where do we go from there? Right. Well, then I would analyze your sentence because you said you had a show that you wanted to produce at the fish tank. <laughs> so you would be the producer. Right. Um, okay. You have a show. <laughs> so I have a show. Right. Because in my mind, it's like the producer is responsible, like you said, is responsible for for that production from the beginning idea and seeing it through the end. So all of those things you mentioned, you need to get your – production team you need to get the rights if it has that you need to like you said set a budget it first starts with a budget because you got to figure out what you have what you need and how you're going to make it happen and so their producers are wheeler dealers they beg borrow and steal things and and the, and the best ways <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, E. So. e. Howe also uh-huh. created said that their uh, good p- chunk of their job is solving problems that inevitably arise. So solving problems. So something tells me mm-hmm. that the producer and the stage manager are very, very tight. We've done a prior podcast explaining what exactly mm-hmm. a stage manager does. Jen mm-hmm. and I have both had lots of experience being a stage manager, and mm-hmm. that was what you know when it came down to the nut of what a stage manager does it was mm-hmm. basically the problem solver <laughs> right and i think the producer is on like a, on a higher level because the stage manager manages the show for instance my first really jumping in i mean i've produced lots of things but when i produced thrill me and jeff church was the director that was a course in producing not only did i produce the show but i rehabbed the space specifically for that show and I tried to keep two questions ahead of him at any given time like I knew what he would be asking for and I'd be like yes I have that and yes I have that it was crazy but yeah just huge problems like this wall is can we move no we can't move this wall (laughs) but absolutely well and and, you know the big thing because we've all all three of us have done theater in Kansas City and elsewhere and I think, you know, you encounter different types of producers, different places you go, like you're talking about a board versus a single person, something mm-hmm. like that. And even to the point where when you go to Broadway, a high end, the producer, it's a totally different bag because you're mm-hmm. talking about millions of dollars. Right. And you have more of a businessman. Mm-hmm. And so I think the most interesting thing that the producer has to do is be that liaison and know how to speak talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know how to work with an artist and mm-hmm. how, you know, well, why can't we spend $5,000 no, right. on a new exactly. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. But you also have to be the business person mm-hmm. um, working um, with that theater. So it requires a strong business background and an administrative background where I think a lot of people think, oh, you work in the theater. You must only be creative. It takes a dual mind there, mm-hmm. um, left brain and right brain to right. be able to work in that situation. Because so, you got to put a limit on it somewhere. Absolutely. You know? 
Well, and that definition of, of a Broadway producer is starting to change. There's this a blog out there called The Producer's Perspective. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I read it on a fairly regular basis. And he talks about, you know, it, you don't have to be super rich nowadays to produ- to be a producer on Broadway. Your minimum investment could, could be just as low as $5,000. And yes, for me, $5,000 is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But still, considering that, you know, most producers are putting in the, you know, 10000 10, to $100,000 to even a million dollars you know, if that $5,000 is a drop in the bucket. And especially nowadays with uh, things like Kickstarter mm-hmm. and Indiegogo, which I know you had a Kickstarter campaign for the fish tank itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you want to kind of go into what the, exactly how that me what Kickstarter is and how that works and stuff like that? Sure. Kickstarter is an online funding tool um, that individuals can use. So it's, uh, it's hard to raise money a lot of times because, you know, if you're not a nonprofit, sometimes you're not eligible for grants. However, there are grants for individuals. But in this day, in in the social networking age, Kickstarter really works for the younger demographic who are online all the time because you can donate to a cause fast, secure, easy, and you don't have to put that much money. You can give $5 or you can give $500. You know, it's just depending on what people have. So I proposed a project last year for the space itself to rehab the space, to turn it into the theater with the capabilities that it has right now. So we painted it, we built a loft, which is essentially the light and sound booth, and we got a lighting, we put it in a lighting grid, we got instruments, and that's about all it covered. So <laughs> you know, I wanted it to cover more, but that's about all the money covered. I was going to say, I'm so, assuming that means you were successful. We were Because I know one thing that Kickstarter mm-hmm. is different from Indiegogo is Kickstarter, uh, you don't get any money unless you meet your exactly. goals. Exactly. You don't get any money unless you meet your goals. So with Kickstarter, the great thing, because it's like that, you really, it teaches you how to strategify <laughs> If I can use that word, that nice word, sure. your fundraising campaign, just like you would do that to any other fundraising campaign. So, you know, you need to build momentum, you need to build excitement about your project, and you need to have a lot of things in your back pocket to make sure that your your pledges keep going up. So I was I did one in the fall for New Orleans, and I was sweating it, but I made it. The last day. And it's always the last day because it's that time crunch. Mm -hmm. You know, and I often wonder what if someone tried to do it in a week. They'd probably make it because it's all about like, (gasps) time. It's the last day. I'll pledge now. You know, so it's crazy. It's that eBay mentality. It is. (laughs) I have to do it, you know. Have you done any big fundraisers besides the online sources? Like I know a lot of theaters will Mm -hmm. do, for example, Shanher. They'll do um, a Mardi Gras event Mm -hmm. or a New Year's Eve event or something like that to fundraise. Um, Is that something that you do? The only other time I – I mean, my first Friday events are generally fundraisers, you know. But before – I was at the fish tank. When I did the Capalia Project at the Fringe in 2008, I had a fundraiser – um, I had a party at the Y in KCK, and I had this party with entertainment, and it was $25, and I raised about $3,000. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So, and I had a fiscal sponsor, so I went through a nonprofit so that people's contributions could be tax-deductible, so that's another way to raise money and... Um, sometimes the organization takes a percentage out of it, which they should because they do a lot of work on their bookkeeping ends to make to do that for you. So 
that's awesome. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, back to kind of a producer. EHAL, mm-hmm. and, and this again, I'll link to this, talks about the education and training needed to be a producer. It says there's no specific education requirements. Uh, they come from a variety of backgrounds, from actors and directors to business management. But a lot of them do start have started obtaining degrees in arts management. And the producer's perspective website talks about if you are going to be a producer, that you should take a variety of theater courses like directing, acting, and design, uh, mainly to so you know what you're getting into. So mm-hmm. you're not like, why are they doing this? So mm-hmm. you have a little bit more of the, it, it goes back to my personal philosophy as a, um, whenever I manage or direct, I have a philosophy that I say the best general remembers what it's like to be a private. Mm-hmm. And basically that means, you know, if you're a, you know, as a director, you got to remember what it's like to be an actor. You've mm-hmm. got to remember what it's like to be a stage manager, because that will give you so much more input in terms of why they're doing what they're doing. That right. It's not necessarily a diva thing mm-hmm. or an ego thing, which inevitably, you know, when you're mm-hmm. isolated in your own job description, that sometimes feels like that, that mm-hmm. they're totally about them. And it's like, right. no, it's, you got to kind of start seeing things from their perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things they suggest. Some of the skills we talked about being business minded. They also talk about being detail oriented, well organized, and able to successfully maintain and oversee a number of difficult projects or different projects simultaneously, probably difficult projects as well. Right. For some reason, I'm really good at that, at the overseeing many different things. I don't know why. I have no idea why. Mm-hmm. But um, there's other things on that list I wish I were. But And I'm also able to maintain calm. Like, I, I'm, there's multiple people who are like, why aren't you more freaked out? And I'm like, because you're freaked out. So yeah, I'm just going to be cool. <laughs> so, and that is definitely yeah. a hard thing to, to, yeah. to learn. I must admit that's one of my few things that I try and I've, I'm always actively – trying to do whenever mm-hmm. especially when I'm directing or stage managing is keeping that perspective of you know yes this show is important but at the same time it's not the end of the world right. if something goes goes mm-hmm. wrong it's a play it's yeah it's it's a play <laughs> <laughs> well um you know one of the things I also found an article on the guardian which is mm-hmm. a British mm-hmm. newspaper talking about 38 directors gathered to discuss what a theater producer is. And one of the things is everybody had a different definition. Mm-hmm. There is no one set definition. Mm-hmm. It is very vast, very depending on the show itself. Some mm-hmm. producers want to be there every single rehearsal. Some mm-hmm. producers are like, here's the money. You go do what you want to do right. kind right. of thing. And, um, one of the things it talks about is that it's not always the producer first. Uh, sometimes the director goes to a producer mm-hmm. versus the producer says, hey, I've got this idea. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those who employs whom kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And it really, it, it depends. It's one of those things you can't have a cut and dry. It's always this. Yeah. I find that to be so, like, I, yeah. And I also, being, having a space and having people use my space, it's, I feel like, even if I'm not producing their show, I'm still a producer of the space. So it is, there are times that I go and I'm like, hey, blah, 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 blah. Because, and I know, and you see that when you're at other theaters and it's not the producing artistic director who's directing, but it's still, they're responsible for that space. And that's how I feel too. You know, this is my investment is this space. So, right. and it's valuable because it comes with people and audience and yeah. reputation. So, and part of that would be, you know, the producer's responsibility is also to adhere to the mission statement of that space and that mm-hmm. theater, whatever company you're working for, from the standpoint of, you know, every theater has its own flavor, if right. you will. Mm-hmm. And it's really obvious when they step out mm-hmm. of their boundaries, whether it's a small theater trying to do a large production, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, that's not really adhering to that original mm-hmm. statement, and that's why the producer's like, we're over budget, we're not, you know, mm-hmm. doing all this, da, 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 da. 
the producer really has to make sure that all the talent is adhering to that statement so that you don't overstretch uh, budget or production or talent or whatever your resources might be. So it's really important that that producer can really hone in on what that focus is for that group because it's really obvious when you have a bad producer because they <laughs> do something they shouldn't have done. Or they don't do anything. That's true. <laughs> yeah. They're like, you know, nope, we're quitting, uh-huh. we're not doing anything, right. and, you know. Or they have tons of resources and, you know, mm-hmm. well, we'll do a um, non-royalty play for five people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not really mm-hmm. utilizing what you could do. Right, know? right. On one final thing before we wrap things up, another thing that the Guardian article mentions is that, you know, for a while, when producing um, theater first started, as in a lot of things, it was primarily men. And that's Mm -hmm. actually really very rapidly changing. As Mm -hmm. Jen and I are both women, we kind of take a female point of view on a lot Mm -hmm. of these topics. And they talk about Thelma Holt, Kate McGrath, Sonia Friedman all female producers mm-hmm. and that's starting to become the, the glass ceiling of being a female producer is becoming less and less of an issue mm-hmm. you yourself female producer right yeah <laughs> do you other- i feel that this town has always been inspiring for women there's lots of very strong women uh, mentors in this town lisa cordis cynthia levin missy Coons, sydney garrett i mean and those are all people who are in charge of things mm-hmm. you know and so it makes you believe that that can happen and I've never in this town felt like I couldn't do something because I'm a woman so I think because there are there are such strong female role models out there that I feel of course I can do this and I and they're the first people I ask for help and guidance are those people and Jeff Church (laughs) any final questions Jen no that that covers it for me okay any final thoughts Heidi on what it is to be a producer it's an incredible learning experience too and it gives you a great perspective like you said you you remember what it is like to be in all of those different areas but it also makes you realize what your place is and that you are serving something larger than yourself you're serving the piece and Mm -hmm. so I think if if you have a group a strong producer can get you on board to serve the play and the story you're telling, that's the best that they can do, you know. Awesome. So that's what they should do. <laughs> well, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back and wrap things up. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Stage Savvy in affiliation with KC Stage Magazine. Put a little drama into your life with KC Stage. Thank you for listening to Episode 5 of Stage Savvy, hosted by Angie Fiedler-Sutton and Jim Lewis. We hope you enjoyed it and would love to hear your feedback. You can send us comments in several ways. You can comment on the blog posting for this podcast over at angiefsutton.wordpress.com, which is also where you'll find the show notes for this podcast, including links to the various things we've talked about in this episode. You can also email A. Fiedler, A, F as in food, I, E, D as in dog, L, E, R, at caseystage.com. Or if you'd like your comment to be on the podcast, you can also leave us a voicemail at 816-23-STAGE. Please indicate you're calling about the podcast, as this is the regular phone number for Casey Stage Magazine. We'd like to thank KKFI FM 90.1 for letting us record in this podcast in our lovely studios, as well as Jason Bauer, who wrote the great theme music, and of course, Finn, our lovely sidekick. (laughs) Um, But Jason, who wrote the theme music, a variation of I Got Rhythm, and of course, Heidi Van for letting us interview her on the various topics. 
Since this is an audio podcast, we're ending each podcast with a song, usually written and or performed by a local musician. If you're a musician and would like us to highlight something you've written, just send us a note. Again, either by email, afeedler, F as in food, I-E, D as in dog, L-E-R, at caseystage.com, or by calling 816-23-STAGE and mentioning by commenting on the podcast link. This week, we have Rick Malzik, who is a songwriter, playwright from Independence, Missouri. He has produced three albums and currently plays at bars, festivals, and coffee houses around the Kansas City area. We're going to link to his Facebook, his MySpace, and his YouTube uh, accounts on our show notes. The song we're going in is Waltz with a Robot. So, without further ado, Rick Malzik. I waltz with a robot, she waltzes with me To waltz with a robot is weird as can be Waltz with a robot, but don't get too close Waltz with a robot, watch out for your toes La-di-da, la-di-da-da, la-di-da-dee-dee-dee La-di-da, la-di-da-da, la-di-da-dee-dee-dee La-di-da, la-di-da-da, la-di-da-dee-dee-dee La-di-da, la-di-da-da, la-di-da-dee-dee-dee it's quite a sensation when your partner is all automation and it's somewhat appealing this waltz has a microchip feeling and it's semi-delightful to dance with a large megabyteful so what can i say I should be glad cause her breath isn't bad and I shouldn't forget she's not stinky and sweaty Though she has faults I must say she can waltz So I guess everything is okay I waltz with a robot, unique circumstance I wonder who programmed this robot to dance I hope that she knows that my feet are quite soft When you waltz with a human you'd better keep off La-di-da, la-di-da-da, la-di-da-di-di-di La-di-da La-di-da-da, la-di-da-di-di-di La-di-da, la-di-da-da, la-di-da-di-di-di La-di-da, la-di-da-da, la-di-da-di-di-di It's quite a sensation When your partner is all automation And it's somewhat appealing This waltz has a microchip feeling And it's semi-delightful to dance with a large megabyte full So what can I say? I should be glad cause her breath isn't bad and I shouldn't forget she's not sinky and sweaty Though she has faults I must say she can waltz So I guess everything is okay I waltz with a robot, she waltzes with me To waltz with a robot is weird as can be Waltz with a robot but don't get too close Waltz with a robot, watch out for your toes. La di da, la di da da, la di da di di di. La di da, la di da da, la di da di di di. La di da, la di da da, la di da di di di. La di da, la di da da, la di da di di di. Stage Savvy is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. For more information, visit creativecommons.org.